basically. Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fido? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. AFC? NRAO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. Today, we're continuing the story of Project Gemini, which was, of course, NASA's second manned space program, the one that came between Project Mercury and Apollo, which was NASA and humanity's quest for the moon. When we left Project Gemini, it was the summer of 1961, and NASA was realizing that something was missing from its plan to go from orbit around the Earth to landing on the moon. Now, Project Mercury was focused on the former goal, and in the summer of 1961, it was well on its way to that goal, although it hadn't actually achieved it. Um, in the summer of 1961, if you recall, Mercury had managed to get an American, well, actually two Americans, off the planet, but it had not yet managed to orbit the Earth uh, on the other hand, NASA was already planning for what would come after that, uh, which was supposed to be an actual visit to the surface of the moon. That project would be charged with making that piece of science fiction into science fact was, of course, the Apollo project. But in late 1961, NASA was realizing that there was a real gap between what they could learn from Project Mercury and what they were going to need to know to make Apollo successful. Um, they needed an interim project between the two. And as we discussed last time, the new project would be charged with investigating a few very important aspects of spaceflight that Mercury couldn't do, and that Apollo really needed to know that it could. Roughly speaking, these uh, technological imperatives were rendezvous and docking in space, long-duration spaceflight, and controlled re-entry and landing. So, Jim Chamberlain, the head of Mercury Engineering, who had been working on an updated design for the Mercury capsule, was told that if he wanted to redesign the Mercury spacecraft, he would need to do it as part of a new program, uh, which at that time was tentatively dubbed Mercury Mark II, and for which he was invited to write a program development plan for review, review by NASA management in the fall of 1961. Now, the astute among you will notice that the language we are using to describe the activity of going to space has made a subtle transition. We're not talking the language of physics and engineering anymore, Nope, we are not talking Delta V's, boosters, thrusters, and re-entry parameters. No, dear listener, we have slipped over the edge and into the realm of project management. Nope, no, don't leave. Don't turn off the podcast. The fact of the matter is that we were going to get here eventually. As the running joke on this podcast goes, how do you get to space? Well, you go to a lot of meetings. And this is true because getting to space has been and always will be, an activity that requires the coordinated effort of many human beings. Human beings with different skills, knowledge, and capabilities. Human beings with different priorities and agendas. In short, getting to space requires a project. And a project has to be managed. And whether we like to admit it or not, the bigger, more challenging, and more worthwhile a project is, the more... It matters how it's managed. So yes, today we're going to talk about project management. B. 
because those early manned spaceflight programs were every bit as much triumphs of project management as they were triumphs of technical achievement. I think one of the enduring myths of the 1960s, a sort of golden age of space exploration, was that, uh, yes, it was a huge technical challenge and there was a hard deadline of the end of the decade, but at least there was a river of money flowing that made everything easier in a way that it isn't today. Well, this, as we shall discuss, is not so. Not so at all. There is also another myth uh, that, at least back then, everyone was focused on one goal and that the unity of purpose also meant that we wasted less effort resolving internal competing agendas. Also not so, as we shall see. Project Gemini, uh, as the forgotten sibling of the NASA program stable, is a perfect place to look at how all of the normal project management frictions Frustrations and finagling were as present during the Golden Age as they have ever been before or since. Before we get to looking at Project Gemini specifically, though, let's uh, have a quick word for the non-project management wonks among you. And also, before we begin, um, let me establish my qualifications in this regard. It is, eh, perhaps sadly, but entirely accurate to say that compared to the time that I have spent actively developing, testing, and supporting technology and instruments that would leave the planet, the amount of time that I have spent figuring out how to get the money in time to do it is far, far greater. And in fact, although I no longer spend time working in space technically, I still spend a lot of time talking about how to manage to do it well. So the main thing to realize about the science of project management uh, is embodied in the title of this episode. Um, there is basically sort of an iron tripod upon which any project rests, and that is that there is a constant tension between how much you want to do and how well you want to do it, how long you have to get it done, and how much money you want to spend doing it. In other words, with enough money and time, you can do pretty much anything you want except break the laws of physics. And you can get things done in a hurry if you have enough money, or you're willing to reduce your goals or leave out some steps. And you can save a lot of money if you reduce your expectations or if you're willing to wait a long time to have them met. The trick is getting something that is good, getting it fast, and getting it cheap all at once. In fact, you pretty much can't. And that's why the actual full saying is, good, fast, or cheap. Pick two, if you're lucky. Meaning, really, that there are always going to have to be compromises that have to be made. And that's where project management goes from science to art. It's also why the myth of unlimited budget actually takes away from the accomplishment of Gemini. Uh, Gemini, I knew I would make that mistake eventually. And Apollo. The implication is that since one of the legs of the tripod didn't have to be managed, Running those projects was less of a challenge than they would be today. And this, in fact, is a gross disservice to the highly skilled and pretty creative managers who ran those programs, as we'll see. Before continuing to talk about the Gemini program, though, uh, we need to talk about the changes that had actually been going on at NASA that would ultimately affect how Gemini was set up and run. Concurrent with the redesign of the Mercury's ca capsule into what was to become the Gemini spacecraft, uh, President Kennedy, Kennedy's decadal lunar challenge 
had sparked a redesign of NASA itself. In May of 1961, when President Kennedy introduced the goal of making it to the moon before the decade was out in a speech to Congress, all of NASA's manned spaceflight efforts were being managed by the Space Task Group, which was still basically working uh, out of what were effectively borrowed offices and labs in Langley, Virginia. The other major center and center of effort for NASA was at the Marshall Space Flight Center in Alabama, where Werner von Braun and his team were working on plans for the booster that NASA would need to get to the moon and back. NASA also operated the launch facilities and the Mercury Control Center at Cape Canaveral, Florida. But this team and these facilities were rapidly becoming inadequate to run even Project Mercury as it moved from suborbital to orbital flight, much less preparing NASA to leave orbit and head for the moon. To meet the growing need for staff in space, the head of STG, Bob Gilruth, proposed, and NASA Administrator James Webb, yes, that James Webb, the one the telescope's named after, accepted a plan to build a brand new NASA center that would be dedicated to the manned spaceflight program. As Jim Chamberlain and his team were finalizing their concept for Mercury Mark II, NASA was running a process to select the site for the new manned spaceflight center. In August of 1961, when Jim Chamberlain was being invited to prepare that first project plan for what would become Project Gemini, a NASA selection committee was visiting all 23 candidate sites for the new MSC. As the initial Mercury Mark II project plan was being submitted to NASA HQ for initial review, NASA was making a final selection of the site in Houston, making use of land offered by Rice University for the purpose. The decision was announced on the 19th of September in 1961. And so, as Jim Chamberlain's initial plan was being reviewed, rewritten, revised, and redone, Plans for the new MSC were going through much the same process at NASA headquarters. In November, the Space Task Group was officially renamed the Manned Space Flight Center. In December, the Mercury Mark II project plan was officially approved by NASA headquarters. And on January 15th, almost exactly 60 years ago, as I write these words, the new project was rechristened Project Gemini, and announced to the world, along with the new NASA organization. The new MSC organization was built around the three main projects, Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo, and their associated project offices. The old engineering division was abolished, and its members were distributed to the project offices, at this point principally Mercury and Gemini. The Gemini Project Office, or GPO, was responsible directly to Bob Gilruth, for planning, directing, and coordinating all aspects of the project. And they had a new home. The new project office was one of the first components of the MSC to actually move to Houston. Effectively, actually, Gemini was the first NASA program that was only ever managed from Houston. In fact, when GPO moved to the Manned Space Flight Center, there wasn't actually a center at all. The only thing occupying the land that would eventually become the Manned Space Flight Center, and later the Johnson Space Center, was a herd of cattle. Instead, MSC staff were housed in a series of leased buildings scattered around Houston. Uh, the GPO itself had its own set of offices, but Jim Chamberlain's office was located in a completely different building in the temporary MSC headquarters. But by the time the staff moved into their temporary offices, 
the project was already very much up and running. Uh, in the book On the Shoulders of Titans, which describes the Gemini program, uh, it uh, refers to the first few months of the Gemini project as a quote-unquote smooth, clean start, which are words that would normally be used to describe the ignition of a rocket engine, well, at least one that goes well. It is interesting, though, that On the Shoulders of Titans then goes on to spend several pages describing the various contractual arrangements that the GPO was getting in place with its various contractors. Now, to anyone who's worked inside the belly of the government program beast, uh, this actually makes complete sense. It made sense to me. But I realize that the average human being, to the average human being, this might seem a little odd. Why is the description of the start of the project principally involved in the negotiation and letting of contracts? I mean, to understand why, we need to make another, well, small hmm, digression into the world of government program management. And by that, I mean program management as it is and has been practiced in um, Western democracy in basically the post-World War II era. Now, it's an important distinction because the way things get done by and for the government uh, in the West, and hence by and for NASA, is quite different than the way those equivalent things got done in the Soviet Union in the same period. And it's not a topic we're going to talk about today, but we'll come back to this when we talk about the Soviet space program. And I think the differences are pretty fascinating, but that's a digression we're actually not going to take today. So what do we need to know about how the U.S. government, and again, many other countries, get things done? Things like designing, building, and flying spacecraft to orbit or to go to the moon and back. Well, the system that is used really does owe its genesis to the massive efforts during the Second World War when the government became the most significant and maybe even the dominant buyer of, well, just about everything that could be manufactured, assembled, or rolled off an assembly line. The system was famously described by Dwight Eisenhower in 1961 as the military-industrial complex. Uh, he used that to describe the interdependent system that had developed of a network of government programs that depended on private sector companies to design, build, and maintain American military hardware, and the network of private companies that depended on those programs to sustain their businesses. Um, he actually coined the term as a warning about how the codependency was becoming effectively a self-propagating ecosystem all on its own. And he was right. Uh, although NASA was adamantly not part of the military, it definitely occupied a niche in this expanding ecosystem, and so it pretty much played by the rules of that ecosystem. In this system, the fundamental principle is that the government is the customer, and they ultimately uh, operate the equipment that is developed, but the government's role is to define, hopefully carefully, what it wants, but to let private industry actually do the work of designing, building, and testing it. Now, at that level, it sounds pretty straightforward, and the division of responsibility seems kind of sensible, pretty clean. But it's not, really. In fact, it's complicated and complex enough that studying how the system works has literally become its own academic discipline. And the reasons for this are many and <laughs> detailed, but the high-level summary is that unlike most uh, commercial transactions, the government is actually not buying anything that exists. It is, in fact, trying to build something that it wants in the future to meet its future needs. Um, 
And actually, it's not trying to build something. It's trying to have it built by someone else who has their own interest in what they want to build, how they want to build it, and how much they want to charge for doing it. Um, so the opportunities for mistakes, missteps, and misunderstandings that arise um, arise throughout the whole process. Now, first of all, the government finds that what its idea of what it wants built evolves over time. Contractors who agree to build the thing discover that their initial appreciation of how to build it and their view of how much it will cost also evolve over time. The more complicated the requirements, the more complicated the initial designs, and the more complicated the relationships between the various organizations who are all trying to meet those requirements with the, those designs, the more complex the project becomes. Over the years, an approach, well, actually many approaches, have been developed to confront the challenges that arise during this pro process. In general, the process starts with a focus on what to make or the are-we-making-the-right-thing phase, as it's often called. This usually proceeds through the defining of requirements, which are what the government wants. The requirements uh, then become refined into specification, specifications, which is basically choosing the language to describe those desires. And this is followed by letting and definitization of a contract to buy something that meets those specifications. In this process, the government is the main actor, but the contractor is normally doing quite a lot of work since the process involves a lot of analysis of what is possible and also how much it's likely to cost. Once the contract is finalized, action switches more definitively to the contractor who begins to prepare a design for the system being purchased. Now the project moves into the are we making it right phase, which normally consists, first of all, of a series of design reviews, usually at least a preliminary design review, or PDR, and a critical design review, or CDR. Now, ostensibly, these reviews are the point at which the government customer approves the design so they can be certain they're getting what they wanted and what they're paying for. In practice, they are really opportunities to debate and approve compromises that have emerged as being necessary, and also to discuss who should pay for any departures from the original plan. Now, once the design uh, is approved, work moves to the actual production and testing. First of all, of a series of test articles, which are, not surprisingly, produced so they can be tested in order to validate various aspects of the design. In fact, the early part of this work can actually be happening while the design's happening and can actually support the design review process. Testing ultimately, though, culminates in a round of what is normally known as qualification testing, in which a unit that is representative of the final project, a product, is subjected to environmental conditions that resemble, or often exceed, the conditions that will be experienced during use. Uh, in the space business, this includes things like vibration testing uh, to simulate the shaking that will be experienced during launch and possibly re-entry, shock testing to simulate any sudden stops, such as that experienced when the parachutes deploy or when the capsule lands, thermal vacuum testing where the article is placed in a vacuum chamber and subjected to extremes of hot and cold, and radio frequency or RF testing where the various electrical components are characterized and tested to make sure 
that they work properly, but also to ensure that they don't interfere with and are not subject to the interference from each other. In a perfect world, all of the qual tests are passed with flying colors, and the final design is accepted for production and build. Ha! Huh. Except that the world is not, of course, perfect. So invariably there are test failures, which invariably require either rework, which is serious but not too bad, or redesign, which can be very bad. Since at this point, with a highly integrated system, redesigning one part generally triggers a cascade of revalidation and even redesign of other parts. It is, frankly, I can tell you from experience, not a process for the faint of heart. It can also tend to be, well, expensive in both time and money. And as you can probably infer from the preceding discussion, making this system work efficiently it requires a lot of interaction between the government and the contractor, a lot of detailed technical conversations, and frankly, a lot of compromises on both sides. So, in fact, the bulk of the job of a project management office is really about managing all of those relationships and determining how to respond to all of the changes, small and large, that emerge as the project proceeds. So with that in mind, let's take a look at what challenges the Gemini project needed to confront and the relationships it was creating to solve them during its smooth, clean start. Uh, first of all, Project Gemini was about the spacecraft. After all, this whole idea started as an effort to build a better one. The job of building it was pretty obviously going to go to McDonnell Aircraft Corporation, since they'd been involved in the design analysis all along. And that part, in a sense, was the easy bit. But there were some significant subsystems of the new capsule that would need to be developed by new subcontractors. Now, these included an on-orbit maneuvering system and the crew ejection seats. But now Project Gemini was uh, a project now, and it needed to do a lot more than build a spacecraft. It also needed to launch that spacecraft, and it needed to perform the tasks on orbit that were required of it, and it needed to get back to Earth so, in addition to the spacecraft itself, the project clearly needed a rocket to launch it on. Uh, it needed a booster, which was pretty much as big a job, or even bigger than building a spacecraft. Now, Gemini's approach to solving this problem was to pick a booster that already existed, the Titan II. One of the main reasons that Titan was chosen was actually because of the propellant that it used. Rather than the cryogenic fuel and oxidizer used in Atlas, and later in the Saturn booster and, in fact, the space shuttle, the Titan used a mixture of hydrazine fuel and nitrogen tetroxide oxidizer. Now, these are two very nasty chemicals, and they are also called hypergolic because they have the very exciting quality that they will immediately ignite when they come into contact, which does have its benefits inside a rocket engine, uh, but does tend to make handling them on the launch pad a trifle uh, exciting. But the benefit, of course, is that as nasty as they are, they do not need to be stored at cryogenic temperatures, and so the rocket can be fueled and left more or less indefinitely, which is why they were chosen for Titan, because Titan was destined to become an ICBM that was going to be stored ready for use. 
The other advantage offered by the propellants, frankly, was that their combustion was actually less violent than hydrogen and oxygen. And that meant that escaping from a catastrophic accident on the launch pad was actually possible using just an ejection seat, rather than needing the escape rocket system, such as the one that had been used on Mercury. Since one of the major redesigned goals of Mercury Mark II had been to eliminate this heavy and to some extent redundant launch abort system, it made Titan attractive as a booster. The other thing that was attractive about Titan was, frankly, that it existed. The point of the Gemini program had always been to build a better spacecraft. No one involved in Gemini wanted to get involved in making a new rocket. Titan seemed to represent the latest and best design of a booster that was in a class that would allow it to get the planned Gemini capsule where it needed to go. Um, This was an example of the time-honored tradition in government procurement of buying something off the shelf to save time and cost. The logic being that since the thing we are buying has already been designed, developed, and tested by someone else, we won't have to pay for all of those costs again. Except that also in the time-honored tradition of these kinds of decisions, Gemini didn't actually want to buy Titan boosters off the shelf. They wanted to make a few minor modifications first. And I feel that it is safe to say at this point that the road to your favorite version of the punitive afterlife is definitely paved with statements such as minor modifications to off-the-shelf items. It will not shock most of you to know that almost none of the modifications required to Titan in order for it to be used for Gemini would prove to be minor. So much so that the Titan booster that ultimately launched the Gemini spacecraft became in effect a separate rocket known as the Titan GLV, or Gemini launch vehicle, that was to some extent developed only to meet the needs of the Gemini program. Now, complicating this situation was the fact that NASA was actually going to buy the Titan boosters not from a private contractor, but from the United States Air Force. And the United States Air Force, uh, that already had its own project office that was managing the development of the Titan booster as an intercontinental ballistic missile. So, the NASA program office was not going to manage the contractors who built the booster directly. They were going to manage the U.S. Air Force project office, who would then manage the contractors. For the record, the prime contractor of the Titan booster was the Martin Corporation. The third piece of the system that Gemini needed to procure was actually not part of the Gemini system at all. It was actually the rendezvous target. Uh, This was because one of the main objectives of the Gemini project was to develop test and practice techniques for procedures for doing rendezvous on orbit. To do as complete a job as possible of this task required a fully capable spacecraft that could maneuver cooperatively with Gemini to practice the rendezvous maneuvers. So, in fact, the rendezvous target actually meant a spacecraft that could be remotely controlled from the ground. The target spacecraft would require its own on-orbit maneuvering system, which would be a much more capable system than a simple attitude control system, such as the one that existed in Mercury. It would also require its own radar and radar transponder, and critically, it would require its own booster Uh, to get it into orbit, separate from the Gemini spacecraft. So Gemini was not actually buying a single spacecraft and booster. It was actually buying two of them. Again, 
GPO decided that the simplest way to do this was to buy another off-the-shelf Air Force product. In this case, the Agena spacecraft and its associated Atlas booster, which was the same booster that had formed the basis for the Mercury booster. Both the Agena and the Atlas were made by the Lockheed Corporation, and once again these systems were expected to only require minor modifications. But this now introduced another layer of complexity because since the Air Force was providing two different major systems to Gemini, the Air Force then set up a separate program office to handle all of the interface with NASA on Project Gemini. So I'm going to let that sink in a minute. What I'm saying is that for two major components of the Gemini project, which actually included three different rocket systems, because the Agena had its own rocket system, the GPO would be managing not the direct contractors directly, or even the U.S. US Air Force project managers who were managing those projects. Instead, GPO would be managing an Air Force overall project office that managed those project office separately. What could possibly go wrong with that? Well, dear listener, plenty. But you know what? I think that'll be a story for another time. For now... Let's leave Jim Chamberlain and his team in the warm glow of the Houston winter sunshine in their newly announced program with its smooth, clean start. Um, and we'll pick up the story in the next episode about Project Gemini. Uh, a quick programming note. Uh, we'll actually pick up the story of Project Gemini two episodes from now. Next episode will be a special episode to mark NASA's Day of Remembrance. Chris Hadfield and his wife Elena will join me to remember those that have given their lives in the service of humanity's journey off the planet in our next episode. I hope you'll join me for that. For now, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.